today I want to talk about the topic of ownership and the idea of taking complete ownership for your life, for yourself, for where you're going. So I mentioned a couple books on a previous episode. I think it was the episode about my favorite things. Uh, two books I want to talk about today, Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win, first one by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, and the other book is called QBQ, The Question Behind the Question, What to Really Ask Yourself to Eliminate Blame, Complaining, and Procrastination. The key word, I think, in that subtitle is blame. How that relates to today's topic is that I find that when we're blaming someone, anyone other than ourselves, we're usually not taking responsibility for ourselves or for the situation in a way that can actually make it better and move things forward. I first came across this idea of ownership with Chris Brogan, and he onto this idea several years ago. He started a was a website called Owner Media, Owner Media. He had a magazine for a while called Owner Magazine. Uh, really big on this idea of ownership and owners and helping owners, business owners and true owners move their businesses forward. So he spoke of podcast movement. The the first year that podcast movement happened, I did the Kickstarter and ended up going to that event. I've been, actually, I've been to all three of them now. And he was the first keynote speaker for that event. And I wrote down this quote, and I think it's really poignant, kind of sums up what an owner is. Quote, an owner is the kind of person that decides they're going to own their life. They own their choices, they own their business, and thus own their future. So a few things to think about ownership as I dive deeper into this episode. As I'm talking, as I'm sharing some of these ideas here, watch how quickly, maybe it's just me, (laughs) but watch how quickly you think about other people and not yourself. I find that this is the biggest challenge when it comes to studying some of this ownership stuff, which I totally believe in. I, I think that it is really the crux of moving your life forward if that's something you're looking to do. If you're feeling stuck and directionless, uh, not feeling real hopeful about the future or what to do next... I really believe that if you want to move forward, it starts with really looking at yourself and saying, okay, I will make this better. I want to make this better. And I am going to own everything about making it better to the best of my ability. Understanding the caveat here too is you can't control it. So owning does not equal control. This is the same idea with leadership. We'll get to that in a little bit in the book here. Owning everything means that you take responsibility for everything that is yours and that you can control. You can't control other people. You can't control uh, a good portion of the world that we live in every day. But if you focus on the things that you can control, the number one thing there being yourself, I believe you'll see a lot more progress in your life. Back to my kind of disclaimers and things to keep in mind here. As you think about leadership, as you think about ownership, think about yourself. I think this is where the ego gets involved and uh, and also this underlying uh, theme of blame and other people and 
Uh, and then you normally have that plays out as, you know, if these other people would just change or if this other team would just execute on time, then our software release would be on time. Nothing having to do with me as the project manager or program manager, it all to do with the other teams. It's very easy to slip into that. And it could well be that those other teams have things that they need to change, but I, you can't always change a team. And I think where this gets really, where the rubber meets the road on this one is it's individual people. So I find that as I'm reading materials like this, it's very easy to turn the focus from myself and hmm, how could I really, 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 really apply this to myself and easily slip into, you know, oh yeah, boy, that's one person. Boy, if they could just read this chapter, if they could just really own <laughs> this topic and these things, then they could get to the next level. And if they could get to the next level, then it would help, you know, the project that I'm working on get to the next level, but because they won't change, the project can't change, which I think is a limiting belief. So anyway, all that being said, the only person you can change is yourself. And I would encourage you to kind of think about, maybe examine, you know, how much time are you wasting in your life because you are blaming other people, circumstances, things beyond your control for why you can't move forward or do different things. This idea of ownership was completely crystallized. Uh, in reading the book, Extreme Ownership. I first heard about Jocko Willink on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I think the name of the episode was The Scariest Seal Ever. And I was intrigued by Jocko. He's very articulate, uh, very thoughtful, and had a lot of good things to say, which then led me to listen to his podcast and where he reinforces a lot of the same ideas. And and then in the book. So I thought it'd be helpful to share a few sections from the book here to really explain this idea of ownership and what, what he means. So in the book Extreme Ownership, in chapter one, by the same name, Jocko's describing a blue-on-blue situation that happened. A blue-on-blue situation is essentially friendly fire. So it's two different units engaging each other and basically, you know, the same team, the same team is shooting each other and not realizing it. And I guess I don't, I haven't been in the military, but it, based on the way that Jocko has explained it here in the book and elsewhere, it's kind of an unforgivable sin. Like, especially, I guess, in the SEAL teams, there have been very limited, there have been a very limited number of these events happening. And it's just like, it's just the, one of the utterly worst things you can do as a leader. And so they had a situation like this. Jocko's the commander of the unit, task unit bruiser, and they went out on this mission. They realized what was happening. They stopped it. Then they had to go on, I think, two other missions. And then they've come back to their base and they're regrouping and, uh, Jocko's basically been shut down and told that he can't uh, operate and that, you know, the higher-ups are all coming. Everyone's coming together. The whole team is coming to a meeting to figure out what happened and, and what they're going to do next. And so he's reviewing what happened in his mind. And I'll start on page 26. But something was missing. There was some problem, some piece that I hadn't identified, and it made me feel like the truth wasn't coming out. 
Who was to blame? There's that word blame. Now on page 27. I stood before the group. Whose fault was this? I asked to a room full of teammates. After a few moments of silence, the seal, who had mistakenly engaged the Iraqi soldier, spoke up. It was my fault. I should have positively identified my target. No, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked the group again. He does this several times. And then he gets to a point and he says, you know whose fault this is? You know who gets all the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the CO and the CMC and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I was going to hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, there's only one person to blame for this, me. I am the commander. I am responsible for the entire operation. As a senior man, I'm responsible for every action that takes place in the battlefield. There's no one to blame but me. And I will tell you right now, I will make sure that nothing like this ever happens to us again. I thought that was pretty powerful. I don't know about you, but in all the years that I've been working, I maybe there was one, but I can't even think of what it was. A situation where a leader of a business unit, a department or whatever, when there was a really catastrophic screw-up, ever took responsibility like that. And I wonder what it would look like if they had. Now, if you're like me and you're reading something like this, your mind is immediately, well, but wait a minute, everything? I mean, how can you be responsible for everything? I mean, what about that one person that didn't do what they were supposed to do? And, and so J- Jocko goes into that. I don't know that I always totally agree with him that it's you know possible 100% of the time, but I think the overall spirit of where he's going with this does change your orientation because it keeps you from falling into that position of blame and really not taking complete responsibility. But the tactical avoidance of fratricide, that's blue and blue, was only part of what I learned. When I returned home from deployment, I took over training I took over training detachment one, which managed all the training for West Coast SEAL platoons and task units in preparation for combat deployments. I set up scenarios where blue and blue shootings were almost guaranteed to happen. When they did, we, the training cadre, explained how to avoid them. But more important, the commanders in training could learn what I had learned about leadership. While some commanders took full responsibility for the blue on blue, others blamed their subordinates for simulated fratricide incidents in training. These weaker commanders would get a solid explanation about the burden of command and the deep meaning of responsibility. The leader is truly and ultimately responsible for everything. That is extreme ownership, the fundamental core of what constitutes an effective leader in SEAL teams or in any leadership endeavor. What's interesting about this book is while there are like SEAL stories and, and vignettes that start each chapter from his from Jocko's experience and Leif Babin's experience in the SEAL teams, the other half of each chapter is a business principle, maybe more of what you and I can relate to. And I think these examples are pretty, some are a little more compelling than others, but in general, I think he does a pretty good job of relating these principles to, you know, quote, the more real world. He kind of reemphasizes this principle on page 30. On any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. 
There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. And it goes on a little bit later. Total responsibility for failure is difficult to accept, and taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. Extreme ownership requires leaders to look at an organization's problem through the objective lens of reality, without emotional attachment to agendas or plans. It mandates that a leader set aside ego, accept responsibility for failures, attack weaknesses, and consistently work to build a better and more effective team. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his team's successes, but bestows that honor upon his subordinate leaders and team members. When a team member sits... When a leader sets an example and expects this from junior leaders within the team, the mindset develops into the team's culture at every level. With extreme ownership, junior leaders take charge of their smaller teams and their piece of the mission. Efficiency and effectiveness increases exponentially, and a high-performance winning team is the result. I thought that part of it was interesting, too, that normally you hear leadership and you hear, oh, Boy, he's that person is strong, such a strong leader. Or she's really, you know, a great leader of that business unit. And while an aspect of that leadership may be their ability to get things done, I think a deeper what he's calling out here a deeper sign of that leadership is the level of leadership and initiative that you see lower and lower in the ranks. I've seen some of this, but I can't imagine what it would be like to be on a team where everyone was operating as a leader, like a cross-functional team. I'm not thinking, I guess, of a, my specific team that I work on, but like across a, an entire product release or something like that. So then he talks about the the business scenario, and this one is a a, a manufacturing plant that's you know hasn't been as effective and and he gets into a an argument with the or a discussion with the plant manager and that you know the the plant manager is basically saying well it's not working because people aren't listening <laughs> and Jocko says I explained that the direct responsibility of a leader including getting people to listen support and execute plans to drive the point home I told him you can't make people listen to you you can't make them execute that might be a temporary solution for a simple task, but to implement real change to drive people to accomplish something truly complex or difficult or dangerous, you can't make people do those things. You have to lead them. It goes on a little bit more to explain what that means. There's no way to control every decision, every person, every occurrence that happens out there. It's just impossible. But let me tell you something. When things go wrong, you know who I blamed, I asked, pausing slightly for this to sink in. Me, I said. I blamed me. I continued, as the commander, everything that happened on the battlefield was my responsibility. Everything. If a supporting unit didn't do what we needed it to do, then I hadn't given clear instructions. If one of my machine gunners engaged targets outside his field of fire, then I had not ensured he understood where his field of fire was. If the enemy surprised us and hit us where we hadn't expected, then I hadn't gone through all the possibilities. No matter what, I could never blame other people when a mission went wrong. The VP contemplated this. After thoughtful silence, he responded, I always thought I was a good leader. I've always been in leadership positions. And then Jocka responds, That might be one of the issues. In your mind, you're doing everything right. So when things go wrong, instead of looking at yourself, you blame others. 
But no one is infallible. With extreme ownership, you must remove individual ego and personal agenda. It's all about the mission. How can you best get your team to most effectively execute the plan in order to accomplish the mission? I continued. That is the question you have to ask yourself. That is what extreme ownership is all about. So I think this can lead to some interesting introspection in terms of, yeah, how much are we owning all of our lives and the situations that we're in and how are we approaching them? So then he kind of closes out the chapter by, you know, talking about how this executive actually did step up and say, okay, um, you know, basically he kind of summarizes how this VP stepped up. Uh, This is on page 39. At the board meeting, the VP did just that. He took the blame for the failure to meet the manufacturing objectives and gave a solid, no-nonsense list of corrective measures he would implement to ensure execution. The list started with what he was going to do differently, not what other people needed to do. Now the VP was on his way to extreme ownership. Again, what would it look like in your company, or maybe even for you, if that's how you started out trying to fix a problem talking about what you're going to do differently not what you need from other people definitely something i can work on and (laughs) that'd be the caveat in all this as strongly as i believe in these principles and i really do like really to my core it's something i'm definitely still working on so if you work with me and you know me and you're like well wait a minute you're not doing this you're probably right but i'm working on it So I thought extreme ownership does a great job of kind of talking about ownership in, you know, both a military and a business context that makes sense. And another book that supports the same ideas and maybe on some, on a more practical level is a book called QBQ. It's by John G. Miller. And I heard about this book, uh, Roger Whitney, the retirement answer man, I highly recommend his podcast. Totally interesting stuff about retirement, uh, finances, and not your... He takes kind of a different spin and different approach to things that I found really refreshing and different and unique. So he was interviewed on another podcast and he had mentioned this book. So I checked it out from library. It's a pretty old book. It's, uh, it's, I'd never heard of it before and it came out in 2004. So it's been around for a while. So here's here's how... QBQ breaks things down, very similar things to extreme ownership. I'm, I'm looking at page 18 where he explains what QBQ is. This book will help each of us learn to recognize and ask better questions. For starters, here are the three simple guidelines for creating a QBQ. Begin with what or how, not why, when, or who. One caveat here. You can easily twist these to kind of get around the rules, but if you live with, try to live within the spirit of what he's suggesting here, I think it can be very powerful. So here's what's interesting to me. What and how? So what can I do differently to move this forward? How can I move it forward? Not why can't I move it forward? Why is it broken? Why won't this person comply? Or when will this team get their act together so that I can get this stuff done or who is to blame here or who's, who is going to do this? In other words, (laughs) who 
which is anyone other than I. The second principle is contains an I, not they, them, we, or you. And the third one is focuses on an action. So again, this all comes back to making it about yourself. And I like his last point, focusing on an action, doing something to move it forward. Because if you're not moving something forward or you're not changing something, things are just pretty much going to stay the same, obviously. He goes a little deeper on this in chapter, let's see, chapter 13, page 46. These chapters, this is a really quick read. Um, probably, I don't know, the book is about, I don't know, 100 pages, but they're real short stories and really short kind of uh, to the point chapters. <laughs> this picture, Don't Ask Who, has a coat of arms with... Uh, this guy kind of crossing his arms and and pointing in both directions, which, you know, kind of basically say, not me. (laughs) So at the bottom of 46, he kind of lays this out a little bit. Blame and whodunit questions solve nothing. They create fear, destroy creativity, and build walls. Instead of brainstorming and working together to get things done, we blamestorm and accomplish nothing. There's not a chance we'll reach our full potential until we stop blaming each other and start practicing personal accountability or as Jocko would say, ownership. And he gives some examples. What can I do today to solve the problem? How can I help move the project forward? What action can I take to own the situation? Try these questions instead of the who questions at the beginning of this chapter and see how fast you can break the circle of blame in your organization. The who questions at the beginning of the chapter were who made the mistake, who missed the deadline, who dropped the ball. And then he talks about how who questions zero in on looking for scapegoats and someone else to blame. Which, if you tie it back to Jocko's thing, the only person to blame is yourself, if you really want to move things forward. Then in chapter 63, he tells a funny story about um, how he had spoken about QBQ, the questions behind the questions, and this... uh, CEO was doing a presentation and he got up and made some comments and then he had this (laughs) after a few comments to hundreds of people before him he pressed a button that projected this message on a huge screen behind him quote personal accountability begins with you I know what he was trying to say but he missed the mark personal responsibility does not begin with you it begins with me so again the whole idea of I and then he closes out the chapter by saying accountability groups are great tools Managers and executives do need to define and communicate standards, but the power of personal accountability comes from the questions that begin with what or how and contain an I. I don't know. I think this is really subtle. You could read, you know, you could hear personal accountability begins with you. And uh, it's interesting to say, yeah, no, it actually begins with, it begins with me. <laughs> and then if each of us want to move things forward, it becomes, it begins with us. Or yourself. In terms of why, why is a bad question. I thought this was instructive from chapter six, page 26. It talks about how, you know, bad things happen that we have absolutely no control around us. Uh, Other people, the economy, our company, projects fail, good people leave. And he says, quote, life is full of these, but still stress is a choice. Because whatever the trigger event, we always choose our response. I was saying that a little bit earlier. 
We choose to react angrily. We choose to stuff our emotions and keep quiet. We choose to worry. One client had a sign on his desk that said, I've had many problems, some of which came true. Different people have different reactions to the same situation. Stress is a choice. Stress is also the result of our choices. When we choose to ask a question like, why is this happening to me? We feel as if we have no control. This leads us to a victim mindset, which is extremely stressful. Even in cases where we actually are victims and our feelings seem justified, why me thinking only adds to our stress. I also think it's a, a nice tie into the whole Tony Robbins notion of, you know, the, the job. We give our brains a job and our brains will go to town on that job consciously or unconsciously. So for asking our brain, hey, help me ask, answer the question, why this is happening to me? Our brain will come up all the reasons with why this is happening to me. And my hunch is none of those answers are positive. They're all negative and they're all either more uh, victim feelings from, you know, victim of other people or circumstances or just all the rotten reasons about ourselves. So I think it's a pretty bad question to ask ourselves in general. There are probably some times when this is a good question to ask, but I think in general, not a great question. There's better ones. And this is where I think instead of saying, why is this happening? A better question is, what can I do to change this situation? That puts a completely different orientation on it. And it gets your brain asking a completely, it gets your brain trying to answer a completely different question, which could lead to a much more positive outcome. So what focuses on the future? Why is focusing on the past? So QBQ is just filled with, you know, additional stories and points about essentially personal ownership and asking better questions. I thought this, it, it kind of closed this out and I thought this was interesting and not exactly on the topic, but if you're like me, you're kind of a constant learner and always trying to acquire more knowledge. But I think this brings up an interesting point, particularly as it relates to personal ownership. Page 110. We attend too many seminars. We take too many classes. We buy too many books. We play too many audios in our car. It's all wasted if we're unclear on what learning really is. Learning is not attending, listening, or reading, nor is it merely gaining knowledge. Learning is really about translating knowing what to do into doing what we know. It's about changing. If we have not changed, we have not learned. What have you learned today? I thought that was a good challenge. Yes, it is really easy to acquire lots of stuff, lots of knowledge, but until we really do it and put it into practice, have we really learned it? So I'd encourage you to think about these things. And, you know, if you have some thoughts on this, I would love to know what you think on this. I, I've been pondering this a lot as it relates to managing software projects and wondering, as a project manager, where is the responsibility? Like, where... How does, how does leadership for me as a project manager apply to the product releases that I work on? And if, you know, if the release is five weeks late, what is my role of ownership in that being late? 
And I'm still kind of try. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Unlike, say, Jocko's military example, you know, he's the commander of the unit, so it all ultimately like rolls up to him in a way that like all these people essentially report to him. And I'm not saying that the reporting to him is a command and control thing, and that's why it works. It's just in the project management arena the roll-ups are all different, you know, on a given, I don't know, product team. There's like roll-ups to five different managers, all of which, you know, are separated from each other, including me. I roll up to a completely different chain. So, I don't know. Maybe someone's got some ideas on there about how you would distinguish, how you would uh, embrace complete ownership in a as a project manager and a leader in that environment, what that would look like for you, or maybe where you would draw the line and say, no, there are certain areas in a project where the project manager cannot take full ownership, and that's okay. Not in a way that blames or whatever, but in terms of being responsible or accountable for an on-time delivery, perhaps there are certain things that, that they just can't and shouldn't be held accountable for. And this whole idea of ownership. What aren't you owning in your life that you'd like to? Maybe you know what it is, but you aren't sure how to go about that. Or maybe you have a strong sense that you could own more, but you aren't sure what that is or where to start. I know, I'm probably starting to sound like a broken record here. However, I truly, truly believe that coaching can help. I've been tremendously helped in my own work with the coaches that I've worked with And I know you can too. And really, it doesn't have to be working with me, but I do want to help. So if it's just a question about coaching or a request for referral, you know, maybe there's, uh, maybe you'd prefer to work with a woman instead of a man or, uh, I don't know, someone with experience in a particular industry or something like that. I'd love to be a resource and I'd love to help you move forward in whatever you want to do. So to make it really real, I'm going to do a giveaway of three free sessions to people who have never done coaching with me. So the first three people to email me at podcast at johnpolster.com will receive a free 50-minute session. Now, you must email before December 31st, 2016, and you must have your session before January 31st, 2017. And here's a little secret. The number of listeners currently listening to this podcast appears to be in the low double digits, which means if you have any interest, your chances of getting one of those sessions is pretty high. So email today. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. If you have questions or ideas around the podcast, send those to podcast at johnpolster.com. 